Amen. Thank you, Charlie. Appreciate it. Go ahead and grab a seat. Again, it's good to have you here. If you have an, a Bible with you or something you're going to use like an app, we're going to be in the 28th chapter of Acts. Just as Charlie said, we're finishing the book of Acts today. And it's been an honor to travel through the book of Acts with you. And I'm a little bit sad to finish it, to be honest with, with you. Uh, we've, it's actually Legacy's second time to go through the book of Acts. We did it almost eight years ago. It was our first time to go through it. And as we traveled through this, I realized this might be a, an every decade book for us. I just think it holds too much of our mission and our values and who we are as a church to just do infrequently. I, I don't know if we'll do a class or take 39 weeks to do it again, but, but I think that this will be a helpful book for us as we travel forward as a church. Um, but listen, as you're turning there, have you ever wondered how those who brought the gospel to you in various ways, how they heard it first? I've been thinking a lot about this the last few months. I don't know why the last few months either, but now I understand and you understand that it's the agency of the Holy Spirit that changes your heart. And we've talked about this here in even recent weeks, but it's the agency of man that will communicate it to you. So maybe when you heard the gospel in that moment where there was a deep trust, so if you're a Christian in here, maybe you remember that, it's likely you do, that moment where you heard it and the, the coin dropped. Maybe it was a Sunday school teacher or a campus minister. Maybe you read a passage out of the Bible or a, or a sermon, something like this, or maybe your parents. Something happened. But I think you and I understand that it wasn't just one thing, right? It's a compilation of interactions that we've had with people that have demonstrated and declared the gospel for us. It's, a, it's an aggregate effort from multiple people. And, and sometimes we can't even point out that that person had an effect or an influence on how I understand Jesus. Sometimes we just saw it and we moved on. But somebody else built on it. And then another person built on it. Have you ever wondered how those people had it brought to them? And then the people before them, how it was brought to them? And then onward and onward all the way back to the book of Acts. I think the church's family tree isn't really going to look so much like a tree, right? I wouldn't pretend to know what it's going to look like, but I do believe Paul, whenever he's telling the Corinthian church, hey, listen, I'm sowing, Apollos is watering, God's getting the growth. And some of us have had serious, significant moments of sowing the gospel into people, both saved and lost. We've had a lot of gospel ministry in all directions, and we don't really know if we're sowing or watering, do we? We don't, we don't really know. In fact, we don't even know what happens with that. We sow it and we water it and then off they go. We have no idea what the Lord is going to do with that. Another question I have. Those people 100 years ago, even here in Knoxville, did those 100 years ago, did they have you in mind when they were on mission? Or was it just the people in front of them? I know this, it might not be questions you ask yourself, but I do. I mean, I'm, not, I'm thinking about my neighbor, but not my neighbor's grandchildren. I'm, I'm usually just thinking about the people around me, but not how it's going to ripple going forward. I just don't consider folks in 2120 as much. It's interesting is that we never really get to see how far into the future or how wide the scope is of our gospel influence. We just don't get to see that. I've told a lot of people about Jesus over the years, on the college campus, as a pastor, and before all of that, I have no idea. I've forgotten their faces. I've forgotten their names. 
I just preached and moved on. Or I preached and they moved on. I have no idea what's going on. You've probably done some of the same thing, right? Did someone else water that seed? I think only God really knows. But this is what I do know. You sit here as a result of other people behind you being obedient and courageous, right? Maybe one person, maybe 50. But you're the result of that influence. And 100 years from now, other people will praise Jesus because of your efforts. The agency of man that you bring to somebody else as the Holy Spirit's working through that. That I do know. And on one glorified day, when you have a glorified imagination and glorified eyes, and you have a a heart rich with the deep affections for Jesus, guess what? He's going to show us this family tree. He's just going to show us. And you're going to see, oh, man, I barely remember that person. Or I don't remember that person at all. And we will see, oh, no, but you sowed a seed. Or you watered that seed. And that person became a Christian and led 16 others to see Jesus more clearly. And friends, listen, we're going to get to see that. God is going to show us that. And that's why I like this chapter, this last chapter in the book of Acts. We're actually leaving this book where we began. In some ways, this is, this, we see the end of a beginning. The church age begins, and here we are. And Acts actually ends pretty abruptly, and it doesn't end with much resolution. And, and I mean, we're left with wondering after today, what happens to Paul? We don't really know. It doesn't really tell us exactly what happens. Now listen, Paul's not the hero of this book. Jesus is the hero of the book of Acts. He's the hero of every book in the Bible. But even this one, right? But Paul's not a small figure. He's, he's not a small character, and yet his ending is kind of lost in the mist of tradition and spotty historical record. We're left speculating quite a bit when it comes to where Paul ends up. This is what we do know broadly. He's about to be in prison from 61 to 63 AD. He's going to write some books of the Bible, what we call epistles, letters to some of the churches. We know that. And then we know that somewhere around after 63 AD, give or take a couple months here or there, he gets free again. He finds freedom for three years. And then that's when he writes 1 Timothy and Titus. Then that guy figured out a way to get arrested again. So now he's going back in jail for a second term here and all the way up until 66 AD. And that's when he writes 2 Timothy, which has got a little bit more of a morose, lonely feel to it. That's why. And then sometime at the end of that year, at the very beginning of the next, he is martyred. Anything beyond that, we're speculating. Don't know if he made it to Spain. Don't know if he ever got to see some of the people he really wanted to see again. We just don't know. Listen, between you and me, I hate movies that end like this, by the way, right? I hate stories that don't have a tidy ending. Maybe you don't. Maybe you like that. Don't leave it to my imagination, right? You make the decision for me how the story ends, and then I will make my decision if I like it. But these movies that kind of leave it ethereal, and you can just kind of imagine what you want, they bug me. And that's a little bit what's happening here in the book of Acts. But this book actually hasn't ended yet, has it? It hasn't ended at all. Not that the Bible's still being written, but the church expansion on earth is still taken away. Remember, the book of Acts is not a book on church history. It's a history of God's mission on earth through the church. And that's still being written. We're still planting churches. And the churches that are being planted are still planting churches. All right, so the gospel is still expanding. God's mission cannot be thwarted. It is still moving. It's moving quickly. By the way, our primary network affiliation 
Acts 29 is named such to nuance this, right? I mean, you can tell you're looking in your Bible, there's no 29th chapter, right? That's not a typo. It's just their tip of the hat to the fact that we are still pressing and pushing the gospel in all directions to all people in all areas of life. We're in the next chapter. Now, all of this might be true and all of it might be good, but why do you care? Right? Just because it's true doesn't mean you care. You all walked in here with problems. Big ones. Right? I mean, I, I, I told my wife, I've had more bad news come my way the last two weeks than in any two weeks since we started this church. I, I feel like every time I pick up the phone, somebody's dying. Somebody has lost something dear. Someone's so deeply sick, they don't know if they're coming out of it. People are upset. There's people that can't be reconciled. You name it. And it's gotten to where every time my phone goes off or there's a notification, I just don't want to look. I've cried myself to sleep. I've cried myself through prayers. I can't get the burdens off quick enough. It, it's, it's, been, it's been tough. So the reason I know you have problems is because I've talked to you, right? You've told them to me. You've shared them with me. It's been hard. Now listen, some seasons are like this, right? We're just in one as a people. It won't always be like this, but we're in one now. People have issues, right? Fatigue, mental fatigue, emotional fatigue, physical fatigue, relational fatigue. We're under duress. I guess you could say it that way, right? In fact, I was talking with a couple this morning about this might be a good time just for us to pray just for a moment, not to be weird and not, not to be falsely dramatic over something like this, but it's timely. So maybe I could just pray for a moment. You could just join me and ask God, maybe not just to take all of the various thorns in our life away just for the sake of taking them away so we can all be happy again, but to be present for us in the madness of it all, to be present with his power as we experience whatever it is God has you going through and you walked in here with something, like I said. I did too, right? So maybe we can just ask the Lord for a moment to be present with us. Father, we thank you that there's never a time where you say, stop bringing your problems to me. Stop your whining. There's never a time where you, you say anything like that, covertly or overtly. And so here we are as a people bringing our thorns and our pain and our fatigue and our issues to you. And we say, do as you see fit. But Lord, we ask for your spirit's presence in us to make us strong Maybe for some of us, this means that you do remove the thorn and you give us the grace to enjoy this season. And maybe for some of us, you're just present with us, being powerful in us, and you give us grace to endure whatever this season is. Either way, Lord, we give it to you. We give it to you, and we ask that you would do as you see fit. But Father, I do pray that you would bring yourself tightly to the people who desperately need you whether it's a marital issue, a work issue, whatever it is, kids being sick. Father, we have so many people sick. Lord, whatever it is, that it would not be suffering that is just spilled and wasted, but something that you would be brilliant with, creative, kind, and thoughtful. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Okay. Listen, our, lots to pray for. Lots to trust the Lord for. And with all of your problems... And with all of my problems, I'll tell you my, my biggest temptation is to focus on myself. Not tackle hard mission. Not step into this very vibrant and costly thing called the mission of God. Not really interested in that.
That's, that's, that's all of our impulse. Whenever we bump into tough seasons, we want to retreat. Now, I'm going to be very careful with this word retreat because there is a sense of truth that we put on our own oxygen mask before we step into the life of somebody else and put an oxygen mask on them, right? There, there is a sense of truth in the fact that if we are falling apart, it might be difficult for us to just step in and be an aid or a remedy to somebody else. I get that. I wrote a book on this. I get it more than most. It could be brutal, seasons of life. But, and I'm going to be very careful here, retreat is never the answer. Withdrawal from the mission of God is not the answer. Rest is, but retreat is not. Pulling yourself out of the game because you've been winded is not a picture of how we interact with God's mission. I'm a big fan of the Sabbath. I think the Sabbath is a gift. It's designed for you and me to celebrate what God has done. He is the one that has done the work so that we can rest. Now you and I, we don't have to work anymore for God's approval and his kindness to us. He spills it upon us because of the work of Christ. Jesus works, you rest. So whenever we Sabbath and we pull away from work, it's a celebration of that. It's an acknowledgement of the gospel. It's a celebration of the gospel. And just hard tack, it's how we get ready for more work. You could finally work to the glory of God. Why? Because you rested to the glory of God. But they work back and forth, right? When people are burning out, it's usually rest that falls out of their golf swing. It's usually rest that they drop and never pick up. It's just day after day after day after day after day of not even working for the Lord's glory, but working for their own glory. And that will burn you out. But listen, we're missionaries. I've spent the better part of 39 weeks, me and the preaching team up here on stage, attempting to bake that into everybody's theology, that that's part of our identity. We're sons and daughters in the king, we're ambassadors, we're servants, we're all of these things, and we're missionaries. But we're not just missionaries into a vacuum. We're missionaries in a world of burdens and handicaps and hard sufferings where you're not just stepping into problems, but newsflash, you've got them. You've got problems too. Hard ones, maybe harder than the person you're talking to as well. But the gospel that somebody carried to you at one point, consider this, it did traverse a war or two or three or ten. It made it through wars. It made it through holocausts, famines, and yes, pandemics. God's missionaries sow and they water and they carry the gospel forward and they do it under duress. They do it under unideal circumstances. In other words, they did not pull themselves out of the game for being winded. You have significant trials. I've got significant trials. And so will the church in 2120, 100 years from now, when we're long gone and our names are just an entry in Ancestry.com. And no one knows our middle name or can tell any of our stories, right? So we need this passage today because our temptation is to pause mission until life gets a little bit easier. How many times have we said that to him? I'll step into God's mission and talk to my neighbor. I'll step into mission and find a missional community. I'll step into mission and do A, B, and C when life gets a little easier. When life gets a little simpler. When the schedule calms down. When little leaks stops finally. When my work season gets a little easier. When, when, when. Friends, that is a lie. It's such a lie. You know it's a lie too. I don't have to sell that. Don't believe it. Mission, good mission, God's mission will typically be under strain, right? The difficulty for us is when we're under strain, we want to sedate ourselves into the mediocre comforts of the world rather than tackle this adventure 
We want our adventures to be easy and cheap and very convenient. And that's not how it works, right? So Paul is going to show us one more lesson in the book of Acts as we finish this out. And by the way, Acts 28 is 29 years after Acts 1. We've traveled almost three decades in the span of this book. We lose that sometimes. A lot of history has passed. And at this point, Paul has been in custody for about two and a half years right now. That's also a long time. So go ahead and turn in your Bible, if you're not there already, to Acts 28. We're going to pick it up in verse 15. And again, if you've come in here recently, I don't have COVID, all right? I'm still not going to put my hands all over you, though, because I have something I'm coming out of, but don't be intimidated, (laughs) okay? But this is a picture of Paul after he arrives at Rome. Significant. The Lord's been drawing him to Rome for a long time, through shipwreck, through false kangaroo courts, through all kinds of stuff. He's being pulled, like, like gravity is pulling him straight to Rome, and he's finally getting there. It says, and so we came to Rome, verse 15, and the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. Okay, so word was spreading that Paul was coming. So the church did something very thoughtful, and they rallied to encourage him. It's interesting. This is the only time you're going to see in the book of Acts the church of Rome even being described, right at the very end. He has loved these people, and he has written to these people, but it's always been from afar. He's never seen them before. So how encouraging is this? They beat him to the punch. He's walking down the road. They're there to greet him. So, yeah, this was encouraging to him. And he was also allowed to stay in a house with a guard under house arrest. We're going to find out a little bit later that he had to rent this house. How do you like that for an arrangement, right? You're under house arrest with a guy you didn't ask to be chained to, and we're going to send you the bill at the 15th of every month. How about that? He's having to pay for this. It's horrible, right? All right, let's go on. Verse 17, after three days, he's been in this place For 36 hours, no, that's not how it works, 72 hours, maths is hard for me, 72 hours he's been in this place, right, three days, and he called together the local leaders of the Jews, and when they had gathered, he said to them, brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty, because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and to speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. Okay. This is interesting. Here's the question I have for Paul. Why is he even bothering with the Jews? I mean, have we not all seen over 39 chapters, every time he collides with the Jews, it's never been a good thing. They, they huck rocks at him, or they put him in jail, or they kick on him, or they mock him. Why is he still, he's obviously in the ninth inning. Why is he dealing with them? As a strategist, doesn't seem very strategic. I think he would just skip over them, make the use of his time a little bit more wisely than this. These are the rock throwers that had trolled him for over 20 years better question, why is he bothering with anybody? Doesn't he have enough to deal with in his own life? He's got quite a bit going on, I'd say. Chains, his friends have been replaced by enemies, he's renting a prison virtually. Doesn't he have enough going on? See, that's what's getting my attention here. And this is what's putting me in his 
shoes. Because I'm not clocking in after three days if I'm in his shoes. I'm not clocking in after three months. In fact, I'm done. See you never. I'm done. I'll find something else to do. I'll pick up a hobby or two. I'll medicate myself with whatever comfort I I could find. But I'm done taking it on the chin for people that don't love me. That's where I'm at. Maybe you're like me, maybe not. Okay, let's look on at verse 21. And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. Okay, pause. This is a problem for me because the Jews are the ones that caused all the problems. It's the only reason he's even in Rome, and they don't even bother showing up with the real charges. So the Jews there are like, why are you even here? We didn't even know that you were in trouble. We don't even really know what's going on right now, right? I'd feel a little ripped off if I was Paul at this point, the fact that they did not show. I was thinking this morning, it's kind of like when you're in a, a traffic jam. I was in a traffic jam the other day. Boy, I was, that's, that's the thing that will get me. So I, I'm in this traffic jam, and I'm thinking, it better be something important that has me down, you know. Just, just go, stop, go, stop. For 30 minutes, it better be something. Don't you do the same thing? Aren't you like, I hope there's a big wreck there, but I kind of hope nobody got hurt, right? I mean, I hope everyone's okay and everyone's car's okay, but there better be a significant reason why I've been sitting in traffic, right? We kind of want to be justified for all the pain that we've been in. I can't imagine Paul being too different than that in the moment like this. I'm here in Rome. You mean to tell me those, those jokers didn't even show up? You don't even know why I'm here? That's what's going on. But, good news for Paul, verse 22, but we desire to hear from you what your views are, for with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, he came into him at his lodging in great, greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved, like everywhere he's been, right? And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's hearts have grown dull, And with their ears, they can barely hear. And with their eyes, they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Listen, those last words are fitting. The last words of the book, Paul is obviously hindered, and he's not hindered. He's chained, but the gospel's going to advance. That's that play on words I love. You'd think that this would slow Paul down a little bit, right? That's what I would think. Yet he used this season to establish churches. This is when he wrote Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon in that small little bucket of time. He's working. He made the most of his time. His ministry was not in chains, just his body. Just his body. Ours is going to look the same way, by the way. All that you feel like is hindering you 
from gospel ministry and from mission to the saved and to the lost. Everything that you think is holding you down, sick kids, sicker marriage, sick situation at work, loneliness, depression, finances, whatever it is, you think it's holding you down, you're wrong. You're wrong. Not, only, not even chains could do this. You chained in cancer, chained in joblessness, it's not a chain at all. The gospel moves unhindered. That's the big idea of this passage right now. Paul is leaning forward even when his situation is garbage. And guess what? All these seeds that he is sowing, he's never going to see the result of. He's never going to see it in this world. He's investing beyond his sight line. And that's difficult for us. As we've looked at already, when we hit a wall of pain, a threshold, I guess we could say, we retreat. Right? We're not really resting. We're just getting out, of the, we're getting out of the noise, getting where it's safe. We're medicating ourselves a little bit. And we also struggle to invest unless we can see an immediate return on our investment. But to invest into a vacuum that might do something in 100 years, no. Now, listen, I recognize that capacity, our, our capacity, it will contract and it will, it will swell from season to season. Not all seasons in our lives are the same. I mean, man, you have five toddlers in your house. It's not the same thing as having five teenagers in your house. It's not the same thing as having an empty nest either, right? Sickness will slow us down as well. Uh, Some job seasons will slow us down. We don't always have four bars of reception, but we are called to steward what we do have. It's just like your funds, your money. You're, You're not called to steward what you don't have. How weird is that? You are called to steward what you do have to the glory of God. But friend, make no mistake, it is a sin against God. Let me say that so I'm not misunderstood. It is a sin against God. And it's a sin against yourself. It's a sin against the people around you. And it's a sin against future generations when chains stop us. When we're so hindered that we're gospel silent. We've pulled ourselves straight up out of mission We've jerked ourselves out of the game because we're winded. What's fascinating to me is that we are so tempted to quit mission whenever it is hard, but at the same time, we're drawn to the storylines of the opposite, right? I mean, we love stories where there's one or two central characters that they just don't quit when everyone else is quitting, even though they're like bleeding, they've lost an arm, they've been shot three times or whatever it is, whatever the movie is. In fact, I did the heavy research because that's what you pay me the big bucks to do. I spent a whole 16 seconds and I looked to see the top 25 grossing movies of all time. 24 of them have at least one character that never quit when everyone either tried to talk them into quitting or quit instead of them. They stayed, right? 24 out of 25. Y'all are all wondering what that 25th movie is, aren't you? It's Minions. I'm sure it was great. I'm not judging it if you like that. I'm sure it was fantastic and maybe there's a hero in there somewhere. Don't email me. I'm not going to watch it. But, but why does that story plot line call to us? Why does it do that? Why does it minister to us? You see, we're learning a few things already. One is that, like Paul, we can make use of every opportunity, especially the ones under duress. Right? Two is that we have the freedom to invest way beyond our sight line. Invest into what feels like a vacuum in the moment. Water, what you think you might never see the response on. We're free to do that. 
This is what he says in Philippians 1, 12 through 14. Um, I'm going to turn there. You can stay where you're at, though. Philippians 1, verse 12. It says, <clears throat> this is Paul. And by the way, just to maybe push this through the filter of what we already know, he wrote this while he was chained to a guard. Okay, the one we just read about. He, that's when he wrote this. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Right? So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So here he is under guard to a group of soldiers and officials that number just under 10,000 in this area at this time, who otherwise would have had no relationship to him. So right when I'm thinking, mission's probably stopping for Paul. He's still in his windup. He's still, he's still advancing. He's leaning forward. Man, I need this so bad. This is so good for me. But what I want to know is how does Paul overcome selfish retreat? How does he do that? Because my flesh at this point says, hey, stop investing. Start looking for number one. I mean, you've got to minister to yourself before you minister to anyone else. I mean, your life isn't any good. Your life has a lot of holes and potholes and issues and cracks and fractures. You need to fix that before you even step into anyone else's life. Before you even enter this thing called God's mission, look, at, look out for yourself. Man, here's the answer. Paul let the gospel shape him. He let the, and I know that sounds like such a, a typical question. It sounds like the typical answer I would give every week. Paul let the gospel shape him. But the gospel is a story of ministry under strain. It's, it's a story of ministry in the midst of deep pain where Christ came and was hung on a cross. Before who? Before rock throwers, perpetual rock throwers, undeserving of the love. So Paul knows, and he's teaching you and me today, that God's best work is done when everything seems chained and hindered. You see, God's physics are going to run a little differently than ours. Jesus was nailed to the cross, but the gospel was not chained to anything, right? This is what we know. You see, it would be a cross that would hold the very first missionary. And we've talked about this before. Jesus is our, he is the prima missionary, leaving a place of incredible comfort and glory in the triunity of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and he comes into a heartbroken landscape where we will crush him. And he does so at his cost for our benefit. That's supposed to shape every missionary. And every missionary since then, walking the same path, what do we do? We pick up our cross, right? Why? Do we do it because it's the right thing to do? We do it because we're Christ-formed. The gospel frames us such. So Paul was on mission while under load because he learned it from Jesus. Friend, I know you're under load. Things could probably be better for you, right? Even if you walked in with very little issues going on, I'm sure you could agree things could be better. But you're perfect for mission. You're perfect for God's mission. I know your instinct is just like mine. It's too hard to fight right now. It's too hard to sacrifice right now. It's too hard. I'm too busy. I'm too tired. I'm too sad. I'm too something. And I'm with you. I get it. I start days with no tokens to spend. I feel the allure. I feel the temptation just to mind my own life. And without the gospel, that's exactly what I would do. That's exactly what I would do. 
But what I want to get to is your load does not stop the gospel, it amplifies it. It amplifies it. This is what's fascinating about the gospel. I'm going to make the argument that when the world reduces and compresses us with pain and fatigue, both the fatigue of the soul and the body and all the trials, we're actually more effective. And I know that sounds ridiculous, but again, his physics aren't like ours. Right? 2 Corinthians. I'm going to turn to 2 Corinthians. This is a great passage, and I know you've heard it several times. I'm going to be in chapter 12, verse 7. It'll be on the screen. <clears throat> but again, I want you to capture the theme of our story in Acts as you read this, okay? So to keep me from becoming conceited, Paul says, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I'm weak, then I am strong. Friends, I'm not excited about this passage, honestly. I kind of wish it wasn't in the Bible for a certain for a certain reason that I just, I don't want Paul to have a thorn. There's a piece of me, maybe a piece of you, that when you read that, you're thinking, that's your MVP, right? You just pulled your MVP out of the game? I mean, are we done planting churches? Because this guy can do it just on accident. He's planting churches. This is your guy. You're going to pull him out right now? And we're not even getting started. I don't want Paul to have a thorn here. I want him to run unhindered, right? That's why that bothers us when we read this. But, but I want the same thing for me. I don't want thorns either. That's probably the bigger reason I don't like this passage. And I don't want you to have thorns in your life, right? Goodness knows there's a lot of churches out there that will tell you that you don't have to have them. You see, what I want is I want a life where we could trust Jesus and be close to Jesus with no thorns, no problems, no pain, no duress, no fatigue, because what stress and pain does is it draws our focus inward. We stop looking around at the mission of God, right? Almost like a wounded animal. We'll, we'll just, we'll, we'll, we'll lash out at anything that threatens us, medicating ourselves with comfort. You've probably seen those YouTube videos of some, some moron messing around with an injured animal and they catch a hoof in the mouth or something like that. And it's real funny at the time, but listen, if you've ever seen an injured animal, it, it makes sense of this illustration a little bit. I saw my first injured animal when I was 23 and I was with someone, I was married. I didn't act like a married guy. I, I was with a bunch of mouth breathing friends and we were walking through a cave and we saw a porcupine, legit porcupine, never even seen one before, probably not even in a zoo because who cares. But I saw a porcupine and he was injured, right? And, I'm, and they're, all, they're all wanting to pull one of his quills out. And I thought, I, I don't know if that's even called a quill. It looks like a needle to me. I don't know if it's like in the cartoons where they just shoot them out, but I'm going to pretend that it does. I'm not interested in catching a bunch of those things or getting bit on the leg or something like that. But this guy leaned in, and he grabbed one of those quills, and he jerked that thing, and that, that animal went bananas, right? It didn't shoot anything, by the way, if you're wondering. <laughs> I came out of that unscathed. But that's how I feel like we want to be whenever we feel pain, like an injured animal we just pull in. 
don't touch me, don't talk to me, this is a hard time. I'm not tackling anything hard, I'm looking out for number one. Looking out for number one. But God's best work is when we're wounded and without power. My best, and I know this for a fact, my best moments of ministry and mission in the past 25 years have been in the belly of the beast. As I do a survey back of when I've been most effective, most carried along by the Spirit, is when my world was falling apart, right? Emptied of strength, absolutely nothing to give, distracted by troubles. Big question for you today, whatever brought you here or whatever you brought with you, that thorn that you cannot shake off, how is it framed how you see God? Who exactly is God to you today? Who is he? Don't be so quick to answer that, right? Don't be so quick. You see, your theology is not just what you say with your mouth, but it's more or less said by what you do. Your emotions actually tell me a lot more about your theology than what you could write down on a piece of paper. How you feel when things go sideways, right? Is God one who is invested in your situation, strong and good, or has he clocked out? Is he just absent? Because this is what happens when we think God is gone. When we think God is gone, then we know for a fact he can't take care of us. We can't risk ourselves upon him. That means we have to take care of ourselves. But we only have so many care tokens to spend, so we won't spend it on anyone else, just on ourselves. And what will that mean? It will mean retreat, away from a mission of a God we don't even really believe in. You see, the heart says God is not strong or good, or else I wouldn't be in this position. He's obviously not going to take care of me. I'm going to have to take care of myself, it looks like, which means I'm looking out for number one. And I'm too busy. I'm too scared. I'm too tired. I'm too lonely to give anything to anyone else. Now, listen, we wouldn't say that with our mouths, right? I mean, if you did, you'd probably be scared that people would judge you, right? But we do believe it whenever the temperature goes up and our presence in God's mission vanishes. We believe it. When we stop ministry... Not to rest, but to retreat, we are in fact saying God cannot be trusted and God is not God. He's not God. This is why so many people discard God whenever tragedy hits them. Jesus would talk about seed being sown and then thorns choking them out and those thorns being just the cares of the world. Their theology was built upon a God that they saw as a concierge therapist. And then when they slammed into a couple walls, they fired the therapist. I've seen it a million times. You've probably seen it as well. But the empty tomb shows Paul, shows you, shows me, shows all of us today that when the thorns hurt and when the chains weigh us down and when enemies start replacing friends, we're perfect for God's mission. We're perfect for extending, declaring, demonstrating, explaining the gospel, both to those who are saved and those who are desperately lost. We're perfect. Because not even Jesus dead in a tomb shut the gospel down. Right? Under duress, the gospel advances. Even in our pains and sacrifices and felt loss, Jesus brings his very own strength to us. We are free free to invest well beyond our sight line. So friends, listen, before we jump out of this, just want to give you a couple things to be ready for. When your cruddy seasons are not improving and you are very fatigued, you're past fatigued, you're beyond fatigued, I want you to be ready for a few things. One, be ready to make use of the moment before you. 
Be ready to make use of the moment that's before you. In this story today, who is chained to who exactly? Do you think Paul's chained to this guard or is this guard chained to Paul? <laughs> I think the guard probably thought, whoa, what's going on? I need a sub. You know, this is killing me. He won't stop talking about this guy named Jesus. It's driving me nuts, you know. Colossians, he says this. Again, he wrote this when he was chained to a guard. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Friend, who is around you? Who's watching you? Who's chained to you? Just so. Water. Steward that moment that you have to the glory of God, to the best way you understand the Spirit carrying you. So if the kids are freaking out, your phone has 19 notifications and they're bugging you because you're trying to YouTube your way through changing out the garbage disposal on your house and you're working on no sleep, make use of the moment God has given you. You're perfect for mission in that moment. In that moment, you're perfect for mission. You are hindered and unhindered at the same time. So be ready for that. Be ready to make use of the moment before you. Also, be ready for those who have already rejected you, like the Jews in this picture right here. Listen, not everyone's going to believe. Paul experiences this, right? The greatest ministry never really gets the greatest feedback, by the way. Ever, rarely. Get good feedback. My question remains, why didn't Paul just skip the Jews? There's only about 40,000 of them in the area. Why didn't he just skip them? There's so much trouble. Here's the reason. He just loved them. I'm going to read a passage to you out of Romans 9. This is out of the J.B. Phillips translation. If you're into reading different translations of the Bible, this is not a word-for-word -word translation. This is a thought-for-thought, -thought, so it's a paraphrase of sorts. I would never study the Bible from this translation. It's a lot of fun to read from time to time. Okay, And this is how J.B. Phillips renders this passage. He says, before Christ in my own conscience, I assure you that I'm, I'm speaking the plain truth when I say that there is something that makes me feel very depressed, like a pain that never leaves me. It is the condition of my brothers and fellow Israelites, and I've actually reached the pitch of wishing myself cut off from Christ if it means that they could be one for God. Does that sound ridiculous to you? Where did he get that? He got it because that's what Christ did. He wished himself cut off. Lord, Lord, why have you forsaken me? Father, Father, where are you? He entered into that painful moment that Paul could just merely talk about. And he did it so that others could be one for God. Listen, it's so much easier to speak to people who haven't rejected you yet, right? They just kind of smile along. And here's the thing about the Deep South. We're a polite people. We're a polite people. Right? Where I came from in Texas, very similar. So I've maybe lumped the Southwest in there as well. So whenever we try to extend or declare the gospel to somebody and they shut us down, we usually interpret that as go no further, like ever again. Right? Friends, people were preaching the gospel to me and I rejected and rebuffed them numbers of times before I stopped and took serious address to who Jesus was. We look at that and we think, well, it wouldn't be polite to tell them about Jesus differently, to do it again, to keep going, to keep pushing. You're right, it wouldn't be polite. Who cares? We're holding life out. We're telling them the, the news that separates them from damnation 
to proximity with Jesus for eternity. Feel free to be impolite. Feel free to do that. But we have to pray for this ability to go back to people who have rejected us. That's a supernatural thing, not natural. Paul didn't just get to this place because he's impressive. The Lord formed his heart for this. This is something the Spirit does in us. And then very last and very quickly, be ready to invest where you're never going to see a return. You know, we've got a church across town that's coming up on its sixth anniversary, I think, or sixth birthday. It's not really an anniversary. Citizens will turn six pretty soon. They came from us. But we came from a church in Tampa about 11 and a half, 12 years ago, right? And then that church in Tampa actually came from a people in Lubbock, Texas. Most of you couldn't point it out on a map, right? Lubbock, that church came from a church in Midland, Texas. It's the one I got saved in. That church in Midland, Texas came from a church in Dallas, Texas. And that church in Dallas, Texas came from a church in Los Angeles during the Jesus movement. And on, on, back, back in time, back in time, back in time, all the way here to Acts. And here's the thing. None of those people in Lubbock, Midland, Dallas, they didn't know your name. They didn't know your name at all. But they sowed and they watered and they sowed and they watered. And here we are. I think there's room for us to repent in a, in a passage like this. And we'll do this and we'll get out. <clears throat> I know the, the obvious thing to repent for is just being gospel silent and pulling ourselves out of God's mission. And that's, that's good to repent for. But friend, there's something underneath it. There's something that's hoisting that sin up. That's just the fruit off the tree. The limb that's holding it is just atheism. It's just atheism. God's not God. God's not God. He'll never do what he says he'll do. He's not good. He's not strong. He's not here. It's an atheistic thing, and we have to repent for that. Repent for the thing that says that not only is God not God, but I'm all alone, and I can't risk myself upon him, so I have to take care of myself at all costs. That's nothing more than just functional atheism, and we have to repent for that. And if you're here and you are far from Christ or you're watching online and you're far from Christ, does this sound strange to you? that Paul would be content with suffering? You read that list with me. Content with all of those things? Again, sounds ridiculous, right? That's how good Jesus is. I mean, to get one inch closer to the heart of Christ, to have his affections grow one millimeter wider, he's fine with another shipwreck. He's fine with being pelted with rocks again. He's fine with losing more friends, not because he's just trying to be really tough, He's not going to Navy SEAL his way through this world and try to shame us all into being just like him. He wants more God. And he has noticed that through suffering, he has found more God. So for him, to suffer is also to be content with Christ. So yeah, Jesus is that incredibly satisfying to answer the question. And my prayer here in a moment will be that you sense that and that you answer that by giving your life to Christ, giving your life to Christ.